this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off um, in the sermon series, and we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, focusing on verses 1 through 18. So if you would join with me as we read chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his office, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time to come until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, um, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful for the love that you give us, that you would instruct our ways with your word that's breathed out. Lord, we, um, we acknowledge that the perplexities of this life are so great that we often don't know what to do. But Lord, our eyes are on you. So let us hear your voice behind us saying, this is the way, and walk in it. May we not turn away from your path, either to the right hand or the left, but order our steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over us. For we are in the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. For we are in your house of praise. Awaken us every grateful and cheerful emotion. Lord, we are here in your house of instruction. And give testimony to the word preached and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the uninformed, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the frail, and make ready a people for their Lord. Amen. There was an article, and I wish I knew what magazine did it, but I don't. Um, but it was capturing that of goblin mode. And goblin mode was this new idea that came out of the pandemic as everybody was sent home and you worked from your house and you came to the realization that there wasn't a dress code anymore. Pajamas could finally be worn to work. Um, at least 
for the most part. But this idea of this perpetual rest-like state. And this author was reflecting on the freedom and the luxury that this offered that they could wear their PJs to Zoom meetings and wanting it to continue, that this may last forever. As we come into this, into this passage about Christ perfecting and his sacrifice for once and all, this idea of goblin mode and this never-ending rest seems a little weird. But bear with me, because there's this reality going on in the background of this text that the individuals that the preacher is addressing are reverting back to a former way. They're looking backwards with rose-colored glasses, longing for the realities that were there would continue on. So let's recap where we've, got, where we've journeyed through so far with the book of Hebrews. This is most likely a sermon. It's written to a Jewish audience that's abandoning the faith, and they're returning to their Judaic practices. And during this, dating this sermon becomes kind of important. It provides some clues for us as to what's the return for. Um, it's probably written between 60 and 70 AD. And this sermon is in the midst of Nero's reign. And some of the worst and most intense persecution would be starting here in the early church. In fact, in 64 AD, Rome would burn and the hatred towards the Christian community would seemingly erupt overnight and continue on for years to come. So the preacher stands in this moment instructing this congregation to the inadequacy and insufficiency of the previous way. So Hebrews is at a point it's a point-by-point -point addressing of the Jewish faith and how Christ is everything they were looking for. So this audience was returning to a previous world in an effort to escape harm, but they're also returning to managing their righteousness. We see these Jewish believers returning to something. In verse 10, we... Not verse 10, verse 1. Typo. In verse 1, we see that the law is a shadow of the good things to come. The whole system is inadequate to reconcile them to God. And that's the point. The whole system was to point them to what was to come. It was not designed to give them a permanent status. It was always meant to be temporary. It could only exist until the fullness of time. There's also a reality here that they're returning to something that's a little more behind the scenes. Scenes. There's a need for a dependence upon other people's perceptions. See, at this point in the Roman Empire, the Jewish faith is officially recognized. It is safe to be Jewish. The Roman Empire recognizes it, and there's legal protections for it. The Christian faith wouldn't be recognized by the Roman Empire for another 200 plus years. So what's going on in the background of the sermon is that there's a reality of And we see a longing to just be enough. Looking for ways to be enough in the eyes of their neighbors, their friends, their families. Ways to be enough and to pacify the guilt that eats at their very soul. Their return reminds us of a reality. Jonathan Haidt writes in The Righteous Mind that there's an obsession with righteousness that's a normal human condition. We are naturally concerned with this notion of righteousness hardwired into our DNA. 
It's in everything that we do that there's this need and longing to just be enough. We probably know the fear to be judged and found lacking. David's all would capture this tension in his book, Seculosity, that we need to feel good about ourselves so we edit our personalities to maximize the approval of others or we exaggerate hardships to make ourselves seem more heroic or others more villainous. The theological and psychological term for this is self-justification, and it cannot be overstated as a motivation in human affairs. So as we see the Jewish audience returning back to what was, we notice that they're, they're trying to manage the guilt on their terms. We'll explore that a little bit more. But the million-dollar question is why? Why did they default back to the sense of law-keeping? If the law was was to point to what was to come, if the law was a shadow of the good things to come, why would they go back to a shadow? It's simple. We know what to expect. It's safe. Notice the language in verse 1. By the same sacrifices, they are continually offered every year. The routine, consistent, constant nature of these sacrifices reminds them of a comfort that's known. There's comfort in activity. More than that, it's manageable. The temple sacrificial system wasn't a clean and pleasant experience. It was a smelling place. It was drenched in death as animals were constantly being sacrificed. Animals slaughtered and burned on an altar, the smell of death would permeate the air, and yet for these sacrifices couldn't address, there's a sense that it's manageable. Lacking a sense of righteousness this year? Bring a goat. You can manage it. There's activity that can be done, and they knew what to expect and what to do to massage the guilt away for another day. As we look back into our time, it's Sacrificing animals at a temple has kind of fallen by the wayside. But we still need this desire to be enough. We often look at performance. We demand our activity. We know what, to ex- to, we know what is expected, and we follow the tasks to accomplish the demands that are placed on us by ourselves or others. The Jewish audience would learn the reality that these efforts would never be enough. Their efforts would never be enough for their neighbors, and their efforts would never be enough for a cosmic scorekeeper. The problem here is that we exchange a God who would love humanity enough that he, he would orchestrate the greatest rescue plan in the history of creation for an impersonal scorekeeper that's more concerned with tally marks than creation itself. The Jewish believers returning to a system that, they would, that would never declare them as perfect and would rejoin a community that was committed to perfectly following an established set of activities that would never provide the one thing they hoped for, to be enough, to be enough before God, to be enough before their neighbors. Instead, they bought into this guilt management system. And this guilt management system would hijack their very soul, and it would threaten to destroy them from the inside. So where does it leave us? If we return to the law because of comfort, what does the law do? What does managing this guilt do to us? The reality is this, in our life, if our life is informed by an obsession with righteousness, then we are tasked with editing ourselves to capture this fleeting notion 
of just being enough. Then we are saddled with the crushing weight of lacking righteousness and being unacceptable. Notice the repetitive theme of the sacrificial system the Jewish believers were returning to. In verse 1, the same sacrifices were continually offered every year. In verse 3 we read, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 11, we read that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Their return to the previous way exposed them to a never-ending reality of attempting to secure righteousness of just being enough. In a sense, they were the hamster on the hamster wheel. We stand in a different era today. The temple is destroyed. Animal sacrifice isn't common, but we look to the promise of salvation in everyday pursuits, don't we? Work, diets, exercise, relationships, vacation destinations, the list is limitless. In fact, one of the ways to determine where this pursuit of enough is at is we've invest our, we see where we invest our energy and where we organize our lives at. This conversation we have with our conversation we have with ourselves in the showers, sometimes is the most insightful and honest conversation we have with ourselves in a window to our world. We may not ever admit that we look to these things for the promise of salvation or to be, give us this enoughness, but the question here is that, are these things our functional savior? So this hijacked guilt management. The preacher in Hebrews is pointing us to a reality that the law here is designed to point us what is to come. However, the Jewish believers were returning to the law to provide the enoughness they longed for. Notice the tension. They turned to an inadequate system to provide the value and validation they longed for. And we do similar things, don't we? Remember the things that we long for to give us salvation or that would calm the longing of just being enough. And here is the problem. It's never enough. There's always more left undone than what is done and what is accomplished. Not measuring up hurts in ways, but when we function this performance-oriented mindset, when we function to manage the guilt ourselves, those moments that we seemingly accomplish it, there's pain. It's just different. It's subtle, and it's deceitful. Once the illusion of measuring up is achieved for the first time, it ushers in a moment of gratification, but we know that what follows it is a cascading effect of fear, paranoia, and a pressure to just maintain it. There's a, the 1990s, the fitness world, was packed with stars. Um, And it seems like every time you turn the TV on, there was a new fitness guru with a new fitness video. One of those guys was named Michael Perrone. And in the 1990s, he was one of the rising stars at the top of the game. Had a major contract with ESPN and Time Warner. He was on the cover of Men's Fitness. And at one point, he was known as the Mr. Abs of Steel. He was the top of the game. Speaking engagement, exercise engagements, to just go and talk about his workout routine. But what wasn't publicly known was his addiction. See, publicly, he was a fitness instructor, and his energy 
for these workout routines was unmatched. Privately, though, he was using meth to just stay in the crowd at the top. The performance, the problem with performance here is that there's no mercy. Age catches up, you slow down. In Michael's instance, the pressures of constant speaking engagements and constant video cuts and going to the gym, eventually the body just goes, hey, I gotta rest. No, there's no mercy with performance. The scale doesn't hide weight that's gained. The calendar doesn't hide the empty block of time. The Instagram selfie doesn't change the crushing reality that the Alaskan cruise ends tomorrow. But we look to our performance to provide this sense of enoughness, this validation that we long for. We find ourselves staring into the abyss and slowly coming to the reality that we ourselves are not enough. And this unending pursuit of righteousness points us to the reality that we are far worse than we could imagine. But the good news here is that you are loved more than you know. So let's backtrack a bit and let's talk about this elephant in the room. We need to place the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament in its proper context. It's easy and tempting to ignore what was going on and what the sacrificial system was designed to do. See, the sacrificial system is pointing to the one to come. So every time a priest sacrificed an animal, it was pointing to a final sacrifice. Every time a priest entered the temple and worked, it was a way of pointing to the final priest. Everything about the sacrificial system was to point to and anticipate Christ's work. The writer of Hebrews says that the law was no more than a shadow about these heavenly realities. By shadow, we're talking about a sketchy outline here. The emphasis here has to do with the roughness of the picture available to the Old Testament saints. As John Calvin would write, the things of the law were like the rough outlines that are the foreshadowing of the living picture. Often artists they do a rough pencil sketch before they apply the paint. This is the shadow that the law of the Old Covenant is. And it has a purpose. Did you notice the, the dissatisfaction with the sacrifices that was running through this passage? Verse 5, we read that sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Even in verse 8, we read that you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Remember, it's God who established the parameters of the sacrificial system. And he went to great lengths in describing what and how to sacrifice. The dissatisfaction towards sacrifices would be a major theme both here, but also throughout the Old Testament and the prophets the people of God would slowly place their effort and energy in the activity of proper sacrifice and not the purpose of the sacrifice. They would get the letter of the law down, but they would miss the spirit of it. The people of God would become more concerned with sacrificing just to sacrifice, and they would neglect that the sacrifice was designed to show the cost of atonement. Buried in the law, there's there's regulations for what's an acceptable sacrifice. They would even take into consideration financial ability. 
the Israelites were tasked with sacrifices that were obtainable but costly, all pointing to the weightiness of the sacrifice and the expense of it. The audience of Hebrews here was in danger of returning to a ritual that was was empty at best. And at worst, it was enslaving. See, if these sacrifices were pointing them to Christ, the sacrifices were designed to display the cost of atonement. In verse 4, we read that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This Jewish audience was returning to a system that would never provide the righteousness they longed for. And we too look forward, we look toward things and experiences to provide this enoughness. Yet in the end, we're both faced with the reality that we will never be able to fill that need. And here's where things change for the better. The sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. In a way, this is inadequate. So you can point to something and fulfill the bare minimum. Part of the reason we're stuck managing the guilt management system is this reality that we know we are guilty and in desperate need of righteousness. Right now, we are guilt-free. Five minutes from now, it's a different story. Meeting the bare minimum, we're still left with the system running full steam, and we are attempting to manage the future guilt. And Christ comes in and offers a different path. See, Jesus didn't meet the bare minimum. Rather, he exceeded the expectation. If you were to make a list of all the possible final sacrifices through the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system that's laid out in the Torah, or in the first five books, you would come to realize that this final sacrifice probably isn't going to be a perfect person. Humanity testifies that we are far from that. It has to be an animal. We wouldn't necessarily get the idea that it would be God himself who would bear the cost. It's probably not on our list of what a perfect sacrifice would be. After all, why, why should it, right? We caused the issue. We were more interested in playing in the mud of a sewer ditch than fellowshipping with God, and that's what he was interested in, and that's what the sacrificial system was designed to create. But Hebrews points us to the reality that Jesus Christ, who would be fully man and fully God, would be the sacrifice that we need, fulfilling and overflowing the very expectations for what an acceptable sacrifice would be. And this would be done once. Contrasted with the priests who came before him who were constantly offering new sacrifices, Christ would offer his sacrifice once and he would do something never before seen in the temple. He would sit down. Meeting the bare minimum here, we would still have to worry about future sin, a future need for righteousness, a future need to be just enough. But by exceeding this bare minimum, Through Christ, in God's eyes, you are enough. In his eyes, you are righteous. In his eyes, you're enough. His work as a priest covers you, and you are left with the reality that you are free and have nothing left to accomplish. In verse 18 through 17 through 18, we read that he will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness, 
of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is what the Old Testament sacrifices and our modern attempts can never provide. We'll always remember this. We'll always remember what was done. But the beauty of the gospel is that our sins aren't remembered. And there can be no offering for more offerings for sin. Christ can sit down because there are no more offerings to be made. He dealt with it. And that includes the sins that haven't come yet. They are finished. They are finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your Son, for the immense mercy and love that was displayed for us that you would that you would bear the weight of everything that we long for and everything that we need just so that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you call us your own, that you call us your people, that you declare us to be righteous, declare us to be sanctified, you would glorify us, Lord, that you would be willing to call us your children. Lord, as we, um, we go out today, we pray that you would, would remind us of your love for us, that we wouldn't forget the depth and richness of your love. Lord, we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. This sermon was recorded at Living Hope Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more sermons and resources, visit livinghopeth.com.